Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Louise. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really like surprised by some stuff we read. Oh my gosh. Uh, Stuff we'd never heard of. So yes, go ahead and introduce the book. Here we go. So the Guild of the Infant Savior, Megan Colhane Galbraith. Got it right, Megan. Yes, Megan. (laughs) You're listening. This part, if you're following along with us, we're starting off what to expect when you least expect it. And she's talking about how she had to have an emergency C-section and the birth of her child. And the weirdest thing is, Sarah, and I didn't tell you this, but this morning I told somebody about my emergency C-section and that my ex-husband and I skipped the Lamaze class because we're not, we're not having that. That's the one we should go away for the weekend. And my son was breached and at the last minute had turned himself They did this horrible aversion thing. And then I had an emergency C-section. We were both unprepared and it was terrifying, all of that because it's surgery. And then you, and then it was the same thing because Megan talks about them handing her, her child while you're in the middle of the surgical thing. And I had the same thing. There's surgery and I'm like, give me my baby. And it was just, I had the same story. It was the weirdest thing. And how I held held his hand, you know, you're in surgery, but you're like holding his hand. And the the mother, I didn't know this, but when you have a C-section, you have to stay in the operating room and the baby leaves because it's an operating room for like an hour because they do things to you. And I, I was on my ex-husband, like, you do not leave this baby. Like, don't let that baby out of your sight ever. He's like, oh, and I'm like, no. I mean, I, it was like this weird response. I was like, almost like I grabbed him, like, go. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was my, when I first read that part of her story, I'm like, wow. And to sum that part up before we jump to the next part, she says she finally has a person in her life that she's related to, which so many of us adoptees. Yes. My son, I didn't care what the doctor was doing to me now, even though I could sense him plying the afterbirth out of me with his back hoe hands. The gawking med students disappeared. She had such a weird scenario there. I felt warm. My son was holding my finger. Yep. Like that. It was so descriptive, you know, and she could see it all happening. There was a reflection or like a mirror image in the ceiling. And so she was watching her body being cut into. It was intense. I thought it was a, it was, it was really intense. It was. I was so grateful. I didn't have a C-section. I could have because Becker too was, was he like eight days late or something? And I had to get Pitocin. Yeah. Uh, that's why I went in to get Pitocin. And they said, yeah. oh, you know, your baby's breech. What? I just didn't have, I had run out of amniotic fluid. It had all mm-hmm. leaked out. So it was, I was close to possibly having a C-section, but and after reading this and how descriptive, I was like, so glad I didn't. Uh, <laughs> so I, glad. I'm sure you've told me that you had a C-section, oh, but somehow I did not retain that information. So this next um, chapter, which is a very long one, so we are kind of halfway through that chapter, is covers a topic I knew nothing about. The title is called Hold Me Like a Baby, but it's all about, so, I mean, I, I'll read the first little bit. Yeah. Their names were Dickie, 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 and Donnie. There was Bobby, Bobby the second, Bobby the third, Grace, Edna May, and Joan. They were also called apartment babies or practice babies. And they shared a last name, Domicon, short for domestic economics. Plucked from local orphanages, asylums, and almshouses, hundreds of these babies were chosen to help college co-eds apprentice for motherhood. This was in 1919. Cornell pioneered the first degree granting program in the country for women called domestic economics. And its aim was to apply scientific principles to domestic tasks deemed mothercraft. It's unbelievable. And it went on until 1954. I had no idea. I don't know how we don't know about this. I had no idea. I was like, this is awful. I can't. 
And then I highlighted this. They were ranging in age from three weeks to a few months old. They were loaned to the college for a year. The contracts between the orphanages and Cornell stated that the babies could be returned at any time if there was dissatisfaction on the part of the college. Their birth names and identities were erased and they were fatted and raised by a rotating lineup of up to six practice mothers at a time. I mean, what happened to these children? I think there was only finally one because all their identifying records were destroyed. So we don't even know who they are. I think that they, a lot of them didn't even know they were adopted later in life. Like they didn't, they weren't told anything. They They were practice babies. They were practice babies, like a, like a baby tender love that you got in the seventies, you know, those dolls that. And they said that they would, one mother would put them to bed and another practice mother would come in and wake them up. I mean, these kids, I I would, if we could find one, I'm sure we can't because of how, you know. Yeah, I think there was only one that was at least that found, it it says at the very end, Donald Aldinger, a Domicon, Domicon, however you would say it, practice baby who reconnected at 46 with four of his practice mothers said, for the first time in my life, I feel like everybody else who had a family. I mean... I, I want to delve more into this. <laughs> like she did. The reason she got into this is she was having a hiatus to do her art and was frustrated with herself and then found out about this, went to the li- Cornell Library and was able to get these records and just went down a rabbit hole. I had no idea. Now we have to talk to her about it. Yeah, we have to and talk to her about it. The, the thing I like, she tied in for herself. She tells you this whole story. Plus she puts really cool art. That's why you got to read this book too. She puts the, her art is, touch on the real pictures, like the picture and then her artist. Mm-hmm. She said, I had three mothers before I was six months old, my birth mother, my foster mother, and my adopted mother. And she talked about, I have those too. You did. And, and then I a stepmother. Mm-hmm. It's so many people involved. And she talked about how she had those braces on her hips in the foster home. And she pictures herself lying there and her adopted mother said, Maybe she wasn't picked up much because her her because a flat head, flat head, and because she laid there with braces on. Yeah, it's a little baby because they needed to make her adoptable. It's all so twisted. I mean, everything to do with adoption and kids, and you know, back in that era, just the only word I can come up with is twisted. It's just twisted, and there it's such a disconnect of body, mind, and spirit. I mean, it's just treating these babies like they're dolls, like they're not sentient beings. And she brought up what you and I did as parents and she did with her son and his, her son is now doing is that all the things back then were skin to skin, yeah, skin to skin contact now, like being with the mother, how important it is not to even be away from your mother. And back then they really thought babies were these blank slates that could be passed around. They talked about it in this study. I mean, how far we've come in knowing about children. Well, and she even says about how with her, you know, now it's known and they talk about how it's bad for the baby to be separated from their mother, even for, you know, however, like it's, here it is. These days, researchers studying maternal attachment recommend zero separation mm. of mother and child. The best environment for a baby is skin to skin with its mother. Yeah. yeah. Sobering. All these experiments you know, with children. Makes me really question Cornell <laughs> <laughs> as an institution. Yeah. I mean, I bet there was more of this stuff going on than we know. This is the thing. It opens up. Well, um, I mean, look at three identical strangers. Uh, I thought uh, of that. There is yeah. many things that have gone on. So, yeah, it's it's just. It was a sobering read. I was I was very surprised, actually. But I was too, and I read it before I went to bed, and it kept me up, actually. Did thinking it? About it. it did. Yeah. Uh, so I spent the whole day, like, exhausted, kind of in a in a weird funk from it. Yeah. I mean, this is big stuff we're dealing with. And it's well-written. Everybody should read along with this book. It's great. Yeah, we have a, a link in our show notes so you can so you can get the book. Our guest coming up has a pretty big story, so I'm excited for you Me guys too. to hear it. Okay, see you okay, soon. See you in a minute. Hi, listeners. We just wanted to thank our sponsor, S12F. 
He's a fellow adoptee dedicated to supporting other adoptees. And of course, we want to thank our Patreons. We couldn't do this weekly podcast without your support. We're so happy to be able to get these important stories out there. Thanks again. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Now back to our guest. Welcome to another episode. I'm excited to introduce our guest today. He came to us through a friend of mine. He's known for many years, and he's coming to us from the Hudson Valley. This is Jay Blotcher. Hi, Jay. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Jay. Welcome. Thank you so much. Well, you're here. So we were talking a little bit beforehand, and you don't have an adoptee community per se, and you kind of want to tell your story and tell us what you've been going through, like from the origins, from the beginning. Well, my search for my roots was stymied because I didn't have any information and I didn't know where to begin. I had always known that I was adopted. My adoptive parents always made sure that the stigma of being adopted was removed from the very beginning because they knew or had friends who had kept the information from their adopted daughter and elected to tell her when she was a senior in high school. And of course, she felt betrayed and disconnected from them. And my parents had taken that as a cautionary tale and made sure that I never felt that stigma or I was never blindsided by that. So I was born in 1960. I My life putatively began in earnest in June of 1961 when I was formally adopted and brought home. Where were you before that? Were you foster care? Yeah. And that's a big part of the story as well, because I only just learned recently about the foster care connection. You know, for six decades, I thought that information was not available to me. And I decided to do some proactive work. And so that was another revelation on top of the revelations. But just to give a context to this, my roots or the revelation of my roots fell into my lap. I was born in Boston, raised in suburban Boston, and Massachusetts was traditionally very tough on adoption records. They had a very punishing policy about no access by the adoptee. I believe the mother or the father could find information, but maybe not even that as well. All I know is that through an array of resourceful efforts, my birth mother found me when I was just shy of 28 years old. Going back to the beginning, did you have other adopted siblings? Did you have other siblings in the family? My parents were unable to have kids. And so I was adopted in 61. And my sister, who was from another mother in Augusta, Maine, was adopted in November of 1963. Okay. They adopted two children. Yes. Okay. And so when you were growing up, you knew you were adopted. And how did you feel? Like, did you fit in? You know, tell us about a little bit about your childhood. It made me feel as if being adopted was like winning a blue ribbon. And so I would walk around you'd be, you'd not even knowing what the word meant, but eager to impress my friends. I'd say, you know, I'm adopted. Yeah. <laughs> and I would strut around that way without knowing until some nasty neighborhood girl said, well, that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, don't you wonder about who your parents are? Those are people aren't your parents. Like yeah. she was, don't you love those nasty neighborhood girls? I mean, there's always oh, that. <laughs> she was an archetypal nasty neighborhood girl, <laughs> and so she was, you know, trying to undermine me and put doubt in my mind about this special gift about being adopted. My growing up years weren't complicated by being adopted, but they were complicated by being chubby and having a bad haircut and having really <laughs> thick glasses. So anybody could pick on many things about me. Also, I had a particularly dark pallor, which I found out later was due to my roots. And we can Mm -hmm. talk about that. So my dark pallor growing up in Randolph, Massachusetts, which was pretty much a white Irish Catholic stronghold, that was another target for teasing. But Mm -hmm. it also made me wonder who were my parents, you know, because I did not look 
like everybody else in my neighborhood. Now, I was handed over to a Jewish adoption agency and raised by Jews because my birth mother was Jewish, and that was her intent. So I was raised in a town about between, we went from 16,000 people in this suburban Boston town, which would now be called a bedroom community, to about 30,000 before I left for college. So medium, it wasn't rural by any means, you know, and we were just, you know, 20 minutes down the road from Boston. Yes. So this, I kept trying to come back to why was I so dark? What did this mean about my roots, my background, my ethnicity? And that was information that was not available to me because of Massachusetts' very hardcore, hardline policy against allowing access by the adoptee. Did you ever ask your parents the questions, you know, do you know anything about my background or what was and there dialogue did. or just that you knew? All they knew is that there was a, a young single mother who could not keep me, which is an oversimplification, but it's what the the agency gave them. That baby scoop era was that baby scoop era. That's how they treated it usually. Yeah. So yeah, I don't recall growing up seeing any documents that shed any light on the situation. My parents were happy to talk about it, but they didn't have any information. Conversely, my sister, who grew up with a lot of uh, mental and emotional problems, thought that if she could find her birth mother, that would address all problems and she would finally find her way in life. And when she was about 16, she demanded, she harangued my parents, I want to find my birth mother. And it was very punishing, very unhappy situation that she put my parents through because she was doing it in a negative way. So my father dutifully took her up to Maine and went to some lawyer to find out what could be done or went to the adoption agency or something, I forget. And she was told that she could not have access to her records until she was 18. And by 18, of course, she had forgotten all about it. You know, so that was you know, that was something that put my parents through a lot of pain because she was aiming to hurt them. She's probably in pain herself. Yes. I mean, she, yeah. I mean, I think she eventually was diagnosed with bipolar. So she had a lot of issues. You know, I didn't have any access to any information. Also, I didn't want to start looking for information and let my parents know because I didn't want to hurt them the way that my sister did. I graduated Syracuse University in 82. I moved to New York City that spring of 82 and, you know, began to live my life as an adult. And this notion of who I was kept, you know, following me simply because the questions about my ethnicity kept following me. For example, I would get into a cab in New York City And the cabbie, whether he was Persian or Greek or, you know, Algerian, would presume that I was a countryman and start speaking to me in his native language. Interesting. And I'd say, well, I'm not from your country. He's like, where are you from? I'm from Boston. No, no, no. Where's your family from? (laughs) Because I was obviously not going back far enough. So this itch, this, this, and the natural curiosity was there because I was a journalist at the time. I I went to college for journalism. And so not only learning other people's stories, but telling stories and listening to stories was always in my lifeblood. And it was particularly vexing to me because I had a story that I didn't know and I couldn't share. I could share part of it in that I know knew I was adopted on June 30th, 1961, and came to live in Randolph, Massachusetts with Lolly and Sonny Blotcher. But the rest of it was all a haze. And I suppose, you know, I wanted to utilize my skills as a journalist to track down my story. So also in the, just you talking about it, while you're going through this, you're a young man. And are you, besides the journalistic aspect, what did you have any, you went through a lot of like the teasing and bullying growing up for various reasons. And so now that you're, you know, working in New York, did you have any like feelings that there was stuff 
within you why or just more the investigative part i always wonder that because how it, you know the deeper part of it does that make sense it's a very heavy psychosocial pursuit to find out your own story mm-hmm. and i suppose i distanced myself from the emotional heaviosity of it by just acting as if i were tracking down somebody else's story mm-hmm. but the first time that i remember in earnest trying to find out about it was when a friend from college who now lived in New York City and was working for Crown Publishers called me one day and said, hey, you know, we have a new book out. It's about finding your birth family. And I said, oh, really? And, and I said, tell me more about it. And she gave me some tips, you know, about what to do. And I realized I had nowhere to start because I didn't know anything about my birth family. I didn't know where what hospital I was born in. I had no access. And so again, I was stymied. And did your and parents that, not have any of that information? Usually there's some information no. given to the birth to the adoptive parents. No? I think maybe years later my parents told me I was born in a hospital that no longer exists for foundlings called the Boston Lying In Hospital. But I don't think I had that information at that time. And so I just, you know, again, I, I let the story drop. This was around 1985. And three years later, my birth mother found me. The way that she told the story is that she was living in L.A. at the time. She had given me up under duress because her parents thought a single girl in 1960 was not going to have a good time raising a child on her own. And they also were concerned about the stigma, the societal stigma of it. But my birth mother always told herself that she would one day try to find me. And she offered me a wide berth and decided not to bother me until I graduated high school. She did not want to disrupt my life. And so starting in, I guess, the early 80s, she began to search. She went through this ALMA, the Adoption Liberation Movement, or I forget what the name is, but it was a very prominent organization at the time before the internet, which tried to connect um, adoptees with the adoptive parent. And the caveat there was that it was only if the adoptee was looking, would they connect them. If the parent started the search, then they would not hook you up. Anyway, like I said, So it was not until March of 1988 that I got a certified letter in the mail one day, and I had to go to the post office. I got a little slip in my mailbox. I was living in Queens at the time, Astoria, Queens, Long Island City, Queens. And it said, you know, you have a registered letter in the mail. I went to the post office one morning. I was a freelance writer at the time, so I was working from home. This letter was handed over to me that I signed for that was done up in the address was in this sort of blood red calligraphy, no, sort of rust colored calligraphy. (laughs) It was very ornate. And the only person that I knew who did calligraphy at the time was a school teacher of mine who had uh, been a mentor in high school, an English teacher. So I thought it was a letter from her. But the return address was somebody I didn't recognize. So I stood there in the post office and I opened the letter, started to read it. And it, the first paragraph said, I didn't think I'd ever be writing this letter. And now that I am, I don't know what to say, but I, then the second graph said, but I want to let you know that I've held you in my heart ever since giving birth to you. And at that point I shut the letter, put it back in the envelope and went home because I did not want to immerse myself in this experience in standing in the post office. And so I read the four page letter and she explained who she was and, you know, and who I was and just, I mean, she was speaking in generalities, you know, as you know, I had a very chaotic time giving you up. I'm surprised that I lived through it. Da, 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 da. I hope that you would want to know more about your life. You have grandparents who are living, da-da-da-da, a really great uncle. You know, I hope you want to, to learn more. I hope we can connect. 
if truth be told, I wish I were on your doorstep right now. The courage for her to write it, you know, when you're saying it, just as her son talking about him, thinking the courage of this, this woman who's really a young woman still when she's writing that, right? Right. She was 47 at the time. That but I mean, but it's that. like her younger self, like she has to address all that pain and it's a yeah. lot. Yeah. Right. Right. So I sat there, you know, feeling like I'd been beaten about the head a few times. I called my boyfriend at the time at work. I said, he said, well, why are you calling me at work? What's going on? I said, oh, I was trying to be facetious. I said, I just got a letter from my mother. He's like, so, because he knew my adoptive mother. I said, no, I got a letter from my mother. He's like, what? From my mother. And then he got it. He's like, oh, my God. And so, you know, we talked about it. And then I reacted poorly in that I got so, what's the word, frozen by it. I, I, was, I was traumatized. I did not respond to her for a month. And this had been a registered letter. So she received the card mm-hmm. with my signature on it saying that she had received it, you know, that I had received it. And so it was, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to talk to first. Was I going to talk to my parents about this? I felt like it was a dirty secret that it was a betrayal of my parents. And I probably sat on the information for about three weeks, finally called my parents, told, and my mother happened to answer the phone because she was always answering the phone. And when I told her about it, the most poignant thing happened. She began to hyperventilate. And she said, well, what does she want? Does she want to take you back? <laughs> I, and I was 20, 27 at the time. And, my, you know, but isn't this the horror and the, and the nightmare of every adoptive mother that the birth mother one day is going to say, oh, I changed my mind. I'm going to, you know. And so she really started to get scared. And my father, who was always the more pragmatic one, got her off the phone and said to her, listen, He's 27. He's his own person. You're his mother. You'll always be his mother. This woman can't take him back, you know. But, you know, then once I told them, I finally felt I could get back to her. And so I sent her a letter and sent it by FedEx. And, you know, I I was thoughtful about it. I said, I'm so sorry for taking the time, you know, taking so much time. It sort of caught me unawares, as you might imagine. I have no, you know, animosity towards you for what you did. I, I'd love to get to know you, you know, I, and because that's how I felt. You know, I, whatever the circumstances were, I didn't sit around in my, my youthful days thinking, who was this horrible woman who gave me up, you know? So I sent the letter and, you know, within, you know, three days, there was a message on my answering machine from her because I'd given her my number and saying, you know, I'm eager to talk, just call me. And then that's, you know, and that was like a Saturday or, you know, and I just didn't get around to it or, you know, there was a part of me that was still not being able to deal with such a momentous thing. It's such a thing with all the, with adoptees, like you're so excited and then wait, I can't do this sort of thing. It's very normal. (laughs) So it was Sunday morning. It was a Sunday morning in April, I guess it was. My boyfriend had been sleeping over and the phone rang at 9 a.m., which means she was calling from L.A. at 6 at her 6 a.m. And I didn't know who was calling at 9 a.m. So I got out of bed with nothing on and I went into the kitchen thinking I'd just have a quick conversation with a friend, you know, who were telling them call me later or we'll have brunch or whatever. But instead it was my birth mother on the phone and she had me on the phone for three hours. I was sitting there in my kitchen wearing nothing, you know, like, you know, I was the child again, the baby, the infant, you know, not wearing anything. Hearing my side of the conversation, my boyfriend realized what was going on and he came into the kitchen and sat with me. And for three hours, he just held me as she talked to me. And then she told me that I had been the product of a one-night stand between her, a college sophomore 
from uh, the Boston area and a pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles who was in Boston for an away game. You know, we all have notions that our adoption <laughs> story is going to be somehow glitzy or fascinating, but I couldn't have made this up. It is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, at, at the very least, my notion about my adoption, my story was that, you know, that old saw about I'd been kidnapped by gypsies, you know, that I was like, mm-hmm. that, that was the only thing that I came up with, you know, when I was growing up, because that was a popular story, you know, oh, you know, if you were adopted because you were kidnapped by gypsies, which probably is a very racist telling of the story. (laughs) But so suddenly I had this information. Suddenly it was all in my lap and I'd been looking for it for years with no success. And the story came to me, you know, the journalist couldn't find the story. And ironically, the story fell in my lap. And so did you have any natural sports ability? Natural what? Sports ability. Oh, no, not the the antithesis of it. So that was the (laughs) crowning irony of it all. My father, his name was Arnie Porter Carrero. He was a pitcher for the Philly Athletics, then was traded. Then they moved to Kansas City and then he was traded to the Baltimore Orioles, where he ended his career. So he was a you know, pitcher, a major league pitcher from 1954 to 1960. And while my birth mother was telling me this, she said, I do also have to explain to you that last year I was in a, a bookstore and found this big encyclopedia. And I thought, oh, I should look up to see what Arnie is doing. And he had died already. He had died at the age of 54 of heart disease in 1986, two years before she found me. So that side of the story was closed, or so I I thought. So she said, I'm going to be in Boston late April to see my parents who are still alive. And if you could get to Boston, then we could meet. And so in late April of 1988, that's when my birth mother and I finally met in a little restaurant in Dedham, Massachusetts. And we sat down. I like I was so I was flustered, obviously. In fact, I went up to somebody and said, Oh, excuse me, are you Valerie? And the person said no. And because I was so nervous, I was with a, a high school friend who was there for moral support. But Valerie finally walked in and I finally figured it out. And we sat down and my friend said goodbye. And well, actually, my friend said, I introduced myself. This is my friend Jeffrey. And Val said, Oh, that's the name that I named you, Jay, when I thought I was going to keep you, Jeffrey. <laughs> you know, so the first revelation that happened, that was the first revelation. The second revelation happened right away. We sat down. She reached into her purse, her pocketbook, and she took out photos, photos of me at mm-hmm. about a month old. Now, having been adopted at the age of one year and three weeks old, the earliest photos I had of myself were from that time. And suddenly I'm staring at photos of this kid who I think the photos were taken at the Florence Crittenden Home for Unwed Mothers in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the name itself just reflects the shame that was put upon women, single mothers at that time. Yeah. I mean, it's Dickensian. It is. It's, it's so pathetic and unjust. Anyway, so I'm looking at these photos. and So she was with you. You were with her for quite, she thought she was going to be able to do this. She really did. And she was a dynamo. She kept pushing back against her parents, pushing back against the agency, saying, I'm going to get my resources together and I want him. So she sweet-talked them into letting her take me back to the home where she was staying, you know, for the final weeks of her gestation. She was supposed to, by all rights, leave me there in the hospital and start her life again. And the records that I finally found by asking the agency, and just recently, tells a harrowing story of her fighting them and having them capitulate time and time again 
to let her navigate mm. her way to keeping me, even though her parents on the other side were fighting hard to make sure that she would give me up. And finally, her parents prevailed. And I'm not saying that her parents were wrong. Knowing her as I did for the 29 years that we were together as adults. I do have an argument to put in here because it's very possible that the trauma of losing you when she wanted you so poorly then affected the rest of her life. She might have been a very different person and mm. parent had she been able to keep you. So I hear she, point. people say For, that. A lot, what I know fun. about her, she was always a maverick. She was always getting into adventures or misadventures. And the person that I knew was loving and exuberant and flighty. <laughs> She's always sort of going through life at a meteoric speed and not paying quite enough attention to details. So I would push back and say, I think that was the gist of who she was. And while she was a loving person, I don't think she was suited for motherhood. She's the kind of person who would be suited to be the best aunt ever, the kind who always indulged you and was like Auntie Mame, always on adventures, always flying somewhere, always going here and there. And because in the time that I knew her, that was the her nature as well. She was, you know, very footloose. To that extent, that was good. She wasn't a smothering birth mother to me because she was always doing her own thing. And we evolved into a relationship where I treated her almost like an older sister rather than a mother, you know, because I didn't need a mother at this point. I'd had a mother. And painfully, the year that she found me was also the year that my adoptive mother died. So yeah. it was, isn't that strange how that goes? Like that happens. It's very... Like yeah. so, so a lot for you to take on at that time, for sure. It was when I was 28, Saturn returns. It's an it's a, a point in uh, astrological time yeah. where upheaval is supposed to happen. So upheaval came on schedule. You know, my birth mother mm -hmm. still was unnerved by the, this whole chain of events and could not deal with it. It was my father who actually said, well, your mother and I are going out to California for a friend's wedding. I'm going to meet her first. I'm going to find out what she wants. And so it was my father who actually met Valerie before I did. He went to meet her for what was supposed to be just a luncheon. and was so captivated by her and so touched by her that they were together for several hours. And she, you know, he came home to my mother and he said, She's not trying to take him away from us. She could never do that. She just wants to know that he ended up in a good family and that he's had a good life. It's pretty aggressive of your father. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not usually the man who does that kind of work in the family. No, no, that episode really showed me a side of my father that I had never seen. He was always the taciturn by the book, by the rules guy sort of emotionally shut down as many people from the greatest generation were. He also took your sister to Maine and tried yeah. to, I mean, he seems, he seemed to care deeply about, you know, the whole events for you that you'd be able to meet her and help your adopted yeah. mom calm down. And Right. Right. And so that was like a, my first visit with Valerie and I met her, her brother, my uncle that day as well. And, you know, I noticed that he and I shared a twisted sense of humor and a love of words and wordplay. And he is 13 years older than me, and she is 20 years older than I. And then on the next visit to Massachusetts, which was probably a little over a month later, I was invited to a barbecue and met the entire family, cousins, this, that. And it was overwhelming, but these were the answers I wanted. I got to meet my grandparents. My adoptive grandparents had been dead for years by now. And I had that feeling of, you know, your grandparents die at such an age when you're still young and immature and you never get to tell them how much you care about them or appreciate them on a really human level, you know. 
And yet suddenly I had a new pair of grandparents and I was old enough that I could appreciate them and take interest in them as people. Were so they that, em- embracing of you? Yeah. Because okay. after was, all, they did yeah. push her to not keep you. So it was just. Well, you know, of course, you know, this, this is 20, 28 years later after my grandfather put down his foot and, you know, said she is not going to keep this kid. And my grandmother, of course, capitulated to him. I, I don't know what her feelings were about it. But my grandfather, who had been a really difficult an emotionally and physically abusive person to my mother had mellowed over the years and of course accepted me. And so 28 years changed a lot. And so these people, you know, and Valerie had told people about having to give me up for years. It it was uh, at the core of her life story. And, you know, she always, she she didn't hide it. She told people about it. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she always said, I will find him one day. I am committed to finding him. She became an Anchirin Shoshu Buddhist and Buddhists make these affirmations or, you know, they make a list of things that they want to do. And one of her things was, I will find my birth child and reconnect with him. And, you know, so this was a dream that carried her through her life. And I'm I'm assuming she had no other children. She never had another child. Yeah, exactly. She married one man who I think had had a vasectomy. She was with another man who was sterile. So she never had another child. You're her child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here I was, you know, welcomed into the bosom of the family and the Family's name was uh, Paul, P-A-U-L, which I believe was an Americanization of some Polish name, but they were the Pauls of Brookline, Massachusetts. And I met all these cousins and they were so loving. You know, growing up as an adoptee, you don't see yourself in the face of your family. You don't share, you know, and so there's always this disconnect, this dislocation, especially since you have friends who look like their parents and neighbors who look like their parents. And I never had that, mm-hmm. you know, and of course that, that foments a little bit more alienation or, or, you know, as well. And suddenly I saw people who loved the arts as I do. My, my parents tended to be more working class and more pragmatic. So, you know, and it was just fascinating. And then, you know, with Valerie realizing that, we shared facial characteristics, you know, sort of grimacing at bad news in such a certain way, or, or if you're being quizzical or, or doubt, skeptical about something, there were just things that we were doing together, you know, that we realized right away. Of course, the big issue for me in reconnecting with my birth mother is, oh my God, now I have somebody else I have to come out to. And I thought, oh, how's she going to handle this? And she told me, and I finally told her, and her response was, yeah, duh, of course. (laughs) And and I said, well, how did you figure it out? She goes, I don't know. When I got that first letter from you that you sent by FedEx, there was, I read between the lines somewhere, and she said, I think this kid is gay. And she was fine with it. You know, she was of that generation or being a California woman that it was fine. It was a badge of honor for her. And in fact, when I met my my boyfriend and he became my husband, she hosted the wedding in 2008 in California. So you you stayed in touch for all those years. Did you together for 29 years? She was in my life from that time on. There was. I mean, we may not talk every month, but maybe we did. You know, we probably did. We talked at least once a month and she would come to New York at least two times a year. And sometimes I would go out to L.A. So she was not just a figurehead in my life. She was in my life. Her relatives were in my life. Her cousins, you know, became my friends. I mean, you're you're hit with all these new people in your life and you don't have any shared history with them. So you have that luxury Mm -hmm. of looking at them 
on a per person basis and say, okay, I know this is my cousin, but is this someone who could be a friend? And I was very lucky to have cousins who were so loving and so much fun that we became close as well. And so my world widened so much. When she hosted your wedding, did your adopted parents come? They were gone by then. Oh, they were gone by well, then. Well, I'm sorry. My mother was gone. My mother died in 88, the same year that she found Oh, that's me. right. You're right. Yeah. You said that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So I have all these riches, all this nurturing, this, and, you know, I was very open about being a journalist. I used my platform as a journalist to tell my story about what had happened and finding out that. I was half Puerto Rican. My father, Arnie Puerto Carrero, I was, was wondering when this was going to come in. <laughs> yeah, was a Puerto Rican man from Washington Heights. And so, as growing up, only knowing I was Jewish and you know being hassled for being Jewish and being hassled for having dark skin, I suddenly knew where my dark skin originated from, and I had to incorporate into my knowledge of myself being Puerto Rican. And what did that mean? I wasn't suddenly going to say, oh, well, hey, I'm Puerto Rican and, you know, leverage that as, some, you know, because it seemed disingenuous. Like I didn't grow up Puerto Rican just because I was ethnically Puerto Rican. Was I suddenly going to buy into a Puerto Rican cultural lifestyle? That seemed a little exploitative and insincere, but I talked about it. I talked about my history and always being hassled for having dark skin. And I, I write columns about it. And I also wrote a piece for an anthology about cultural and personal identity. I would talk about it the way that Valerie talked about it, you know, because it was such a fascinating story. And of course, if I could support other people who were looking for their birth parents, you know, I could just talk about the richness of the experience. And I'm not not everybody has as rich an experience as I have. Some people have a harrowing experience when they meet their birth mother or father, and there's no connection at all. Or conversely, the birth mother or father rejects them because they yeah. don't want that reminder of the past. Yeah, we've had really, many of these stories on our podcast. Yeah, I really love different out. variations of that. Yeah. Everybody embraced me. You're and, a transracial I, adoptee, as it turns out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, and on your father's side, your father's side, you know that family? I didn't do anything about my father's side for years. The only thing I did was I called up the Kansas City Star and I said, Hi, I'm doing research on an article about Arnie Porter Carrero, who was a <laughs> resident of Kansas City, not spilling the beans on me. Could you send me some information? I called the editor of the sports section. He's like, Sure. And in a few days, I got all this photocopied. A series of articles about Arnie, including his obit. And his obit listed his survivors, which included his mother and a brother and kids. So suddenly I had this information. What did I do with it? I sat on it. 19, <laughs> 1988, I sat on it until 1995. And at that point, I was a friend of mine who was at New York University, was in documentary class. She has since become an award-winning documentarian. She said, you know, your story fascinates me because I'm adopted and I want to do a little movie. I have to do a a mini doc about somebody. I'm going to do it about you. And so we went out one day and shot some footage where I did a voiceover about my birth mother and all that. And at one point during the interview, she said, so what about your birth father's family? And I had nothing to say because why not? Why would you contact them? You have the information. And I said, I don't know. I guess maybe because he didn't know that I was alive. I forgot to include that part. My birth mother, once she found out she was pregnant, this man had been her first sexual partner. So she knew what had happened. Her parents banished her. They told her, you're going away. You're not going to be here. We're not going to deal with the shame of your pregnancy You go anywhere you want, and when you come back, you'll come back just as you're ready to have the child, and we'll make sure it gets adopted. Very nurturing people. You know, you could give them some slack that it was 1960, and these things weren't acceptable, but they were not nurturing to her at all. They made her 
feel. It's so cold. It's so cold yeah. to, your, to your child, yeah. you know? And so she decided to move to Florida, moved in with a roommate, and she happened to be looking at the paper one day and it said, Baltimore Orioles here for, you know, spring training. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay. And again, being a resourceful, unstoppable force of nature, she called up, got a number, called up the clubhouse and said, I want to meet with Arnie Portocarrero. He remembered her. And he said, oh, yeah, well, let's go out for dinner. I have a friend. Why don't you bring a friend as well? And, you know, we'll have a double date. And she thought, oh, boy. And so she went to the dinner with a raincoat on because she was already showing you know, so they're sitting having dinner and he was a garrulous, charming, talkative guy. And he's just telling stories and this and that. And she's thinking, how am I going to broach the subject? How do you talk to Ben? Say, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant with your child. And so while she was puzzling over how to do this, he said, yeah, you know, after spring training is over, I'll have a couple of weeks to go home and see my wife and son. And, mm. you know, I'll, uh, you know, be on the road. Mm. And when she heard that, she thought, that's it, game she over. She never told him. No. She was she said, I'm not gonna ruin this man's life. And so she ended that dinner without giving her speech. So he never knew. So cut and, to 1995, and your friend, the documentarian, is like, You have this information. So I, you know, and so <laughs> I felt that telling this family, uh, swooping in on this unsuspecting family and telling them, hey, you have this bastard in your life might be a bit much. But I finally decided to do it. I went to the post office. In those days, post offices all had major telephone books. And I knew that my half-brother lived in Phoenix. And I found his address and I sent him a letter and three days later, I got a call on my home machine. Jay Blotter, this is Mario Portocarrero. Call me. It looks like we share a father. <laughs> I like him already. Yeah. <laughs> very, very philosophical about the whole thing. And, you know, I got home, turned on my answering machine. That played and my blood ran cold. I thought, yeah, maybe I'll deal with this tomorrow. This is a little bit too much. You are very uh, good at procrastinating on yeah, heavy-duty things, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, right. I set things into motion, and then when they do happen, I shrink back a little. Yeah, I do. No, thanks. Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I thought, I'll, I'll call him tomorrow. But the phone rang again. And it was Mario. He's like, I was going to keep calling until you answered, you know. And so we we talked and he was very philosophical about it. I said, I'm not here to get money. I'm not here to cause trouble. I just want to know about the man who I'm told is my father. And he said, well, funny thing that my parents divorced when I was about three and we were shipped off to our maternal grandparents. So I didn't get to know him as a person again until I left the army at around 21 or 22. And we had relationship for two or three years before he died. Mm. So that gives me some indication of what kind of father Arnie yeah. Portocarrero would have been for me. So yeah. again, I got a sense that my adoptive life was so much richer and was so much better for me as a person, because both parents wouldn't have been ideal parents, you know, for me. Do you have an ongoing relationship with him, with your brother? If he hadn't been such a rabid Trumper, we, we might have. We don't talk. But oh, what about the other sibling? But, and he told me I, I had a half sister named Marisa who lived in California. And we had a relationship until she died suddenly of a drug overdose in oh. 2000. You know, both of them, I have to say, their lives were changed and not for the better by being shipped off to their grandparents. They had, both of them had very, very deep anger. Yeah. You know, just hotwired into their lives, into their personalities. And of course, it took it manifested itself in different ways. For her, it was about 
having a lot of ruinous relationships with abusive men and also becoming a substance abuser. For him, yeah. it was just being always angry and doing, I don't know, impulsive things like marrying a woman who was a an end of days person and going to live with her on a mountain in Idaho, waiting for the millennium. Yeah. I mean, searching. You know, they were both they were both abandoned and searching. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, so I had it better, you know, and it reminded me their horrible stories reminded me how much more fortunate I was, how my life turned out, you know, to have loving parents in suburban Boston who really nurtured me. And having Valerie all those years. I mean, that's that's not normal in most, you know, most circumstances. That's a really nice reunion. I mean, 29 years with your biological yeah. mom. I mean, you know, certainly sometimes there were times where I had to push her away because she was trying to mother smother me, you know, but, you know, I didn't realize the full weight of the trauma in her and how that that trauma never went away. Even though I was in her life, the trauma never went away. Even though she was in my life as well, I still manifested that sense of abandonment that you know, adoptees have, you know, and it was something that it wasn't until years later that I connected the dots and realized what, how tenacious I was in relationships or friendships or how I would run after men who didn't want me and try to win them over. Mm-hmm. And how, if, a, if I perceived a friend as not being a good enough friend, I would get very angry and drop the relationship or, or be very cruel to them because I was afraid of that abandonment again. You know, mm-hmm. it, it didn't make sense to me when I was growing up because I didn't have the perspective. It wasn't until years later that I would understand the dynamic at play for being an abandoned kid, even though I had that dream scenario that my birth mother comes back and says, I've always loved you and always wanted you. You still have the initial relinquishment trauma. There's just yeah. no getting around that. Like, you can't get around it. Jay, yeah. it follows you forever. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know, we do we do the work, though, right? We talk about it yeah. and we sit with yeah. the uncomfortable and do the work. So now that I had this side of the family, I my half-brother said to me, your grandmother is still alive. This was 1995. She's she was 85 at the time, but please don't tell her. I think this would be too much of a shock. I said, oh, okay. But she found out eventually. So he, he broke his own promise, told her, and she connected with me. And she lived out on Long Island at the time. So I was able to go out and meet her where she lived as a widow at home with her son, Ozzy, my uncle, Ozzy, uncle. uncle Oscar, lived with her. So she embraced me. I mean, I, I guess when she saw me for the first time, she saw the face of her dead, her late son in mine and just pledged herself to be there for me. She said, family must stay together. So I was already family. That's you know, great. She, she didn't understand. She initially thought that Arnie knew about me and had just not taken responsibility. But I think, I hope that I, I told her that he just didn't know what had happened, you know, so that he hadn't been, you know, he hadn't shirked his responsibility. He just didn't but, know. Yeah. I had the same yeah. with my biological father. He didn't, he didn't know about me. And so I went to see, I was working in LA for some work. Um, I guess I was working for a magazine at the time. And I told my half sister, Marisa, and she said, Oh my God, that'd be great to get together. We'll have brunch. You bring your mother and I'll bring my mother. <laughs> and not thinking, I'm like, okay. And it was, you know, with her her newborn daughters. Well, her daughter was a couple of months old by then. And so we met for brunch, like out on outside at Marina Del Rey. We sat down and then I like the enormity of what it is was happening just hit me. And I'm like, I'm sitting here with my birth mother, with my half-sister and her birth mother, the birth mother who had been cheated on by the father to make me, you know? 
that's cool. Yeah, I did fall. That's cool. That's crazy. Like I I started to stammer and like, uh, what was I thinking that this was even a good idea? And then Marisa's mother, whose name was Patty, broke the ice and said, listen, Valerie, I don't blame you for what happened. But if I had Arnie here right now, I'd kill him. (laughs) So we all had a good laugh. And, you know, life being stranger than fiction, Valerie and Patty became friends. I love that. Valerie sounds like she was just an incredible person. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. And it helped her to have no boundaries as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jay, thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on and really love hearing it. I did have one last little footnote. Uh Do you have a second? Yes. <laughs> okay. Last year, on June 30th, every year, I post a photo on Facebook of me coming home to the Blotcher family as an adoptee. And somebody in the comments said, yeah, but where were you before then? And I realized I didn't know. And I've always wanted to know. And I didn't think I had the access. But I went back to the agency. They got my records out of storage and were able to find the woman who was my foster mother for the first year and three weeks of my life. Now, she had died in 2010, but they were able to connect me with one of her three surviving kids. And I called this woman because she said she was willing to talk to me. And for four hours, we talked about this woman who for 30 years fostered more than 100 kids in Lexington, Massachusetts. And I was just one of many lucky kids. Her name was Mary Nickerson. She was of Scottish and English descent and was just a nurturing, loving woman. And my foster sister, if you will, her name is Linda. She said, why don't you tell me when you were with us? Because we took photos of all the kids Uh who passed through our lives because they were my brothers and sisters. And so I gave her the time coordinates and she was able to find in a photo album, a photo of me right before I left the family in 1961. You know, it was just goosebump time. It is. That is amazing. A photo of me with my foster mother. So suddenly all those loose ends in my adoption story were finally tied up when I was 62. That's fantastic. Wow. So I'm a very, very lucky person. I had love from all angles. I was thinking that you had a lot of kids wonder what happens that year or those two years or Mm -hmm. when the foster care, you you were loved. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking Sarah might be thinking that and you had Mm -hmm. 30 days with your mom. I mean, with your biological mom. And then you had a loving foster mother you found out. You know, yeah. I think it helps and every bit of love with a baby, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. yeah, aside from the trauma of abandonment and all that, I, I I did pretty well. You know, I'm a functional human being and I'm in a <laughs> marvelous relationship with my Aww. husband. That's Thank pretty you funny. so much, Jay. I really enjoyed hearing it and love the connection. And I so appreciate you coming on. Of course. Thank you so much for doing this and for reaching out and nurturing adoptees all over the world. Thank you, Jay. And send us the pictures because I I wrote to you that we're going to put them on on our website page too, that we're going to start putting pictures up. Good deal. Okay. That'd be great. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. I'm so glad Jay finally made it on. We kind of went back and forth with him for a while. Me too. It's a neat connection too through your friend. And David. I love his storytelling and how he does it. Just the, um, yeah. Right. With his journalistic flair and wording. And you know, what struck me the most about his story is just, I agreed with what you said about his mom. We don't know what kind of biological mom she, you know, how his mom would have been type of thing with the trauma she suffered. And she, I I think about that a lot with, with mm -hmm. birth mothers. And I think sometimes I feel like that was, I used, that is, well, I was better off, you know, yeah. early, but who knows how things would have been without that trauma. 
Yeah, without the trauma, we don't know. I mean, you really don't know. It's the sliding doors moment. And the fact that she hung in there, he did say she was a fighter. She tried to stay in there and and keep him and fight her family. That's, you know, for her young age and that she tried and that she found him. I like that part of his story a lot. And that she was determined. I mean, she really did not want to give him up. It's sad that in that era, mm-hmm. you know, the girls who went away era of what mm-hmm. young women. I would, but I'm glad he got to stay in her, you know, that they were in each other's lives for all those years. And how neat they have a wedding at her home and it's all very connected. Mm-hmm. Like it's full circle. Yeah. For her too. I'm glad she had mm-hmm. that for the rest of her life. Yeah. I want to stay in touch with him. He's a neat man. Yeah. It's a great, great interview. All right, Sarah. Well, what do we say? We say <laughs> another great episode. Another great episode. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.